Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. I'm Matt. And we're reading a new book. It's book time, baby. It's book time. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Spectology is a science fiction book club podcast. Sure is. Every month we pick a book, we read it, and what else do we do, Matt? We talk about it. Whoop. Over the course of two episodes. Uh, this is our pre-read episode, so it's the first spoiler-free episode for the book Exhalation by Ted Chang. Or otherwise known as Jiang Feng Nan. So yeah, so we are reading um, Exhalation is a uh, book of short stories by Ted Chiang. So this is the first time that we're not reading a novel, but rather, you know, it's sort of like a collection of short stories. Each one is different. Um, I imagine in our post read, so Ted Chiang, uh, we'll talk more about book facts. I was about to <laughs> say something, but it's not coming yet. I guess we'll talk more about it in the in the in a minute here. But um, he has a couple uh, he has two short story collections out. The one that's most recently out is called Exhalation. Uh, I've read part of it and I've actually read some of the stories already because they've been published elsewhere. Uh, it's really great. His Ditto. previous collection is Stories of Your Life and Others. Uh, which is named because the one of the stories is called Story of Your Life, uh, which was made into a major motion picture a couple of years ago called Arrival uh, with Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner. Uh, Denis Villeneuve was the um, director. So, yeah, so he's cool. He's been publishing for a very long time. Uh, we wanted to do something a little bit different and... Right, like do something that's not a novel. Um, I imagine our post read will also talk about some of his other short stories because we've read the collections and everything. I imagine that we will. And you know, this is a, a, a an author who both of us really, really like and ha have read a lot before, and we're excited to read his new book that just came out. So mm -hmm. it was kind of a almost a no brainer because it <laughs> ticks a lot of boxes for us. It's it's a uh, thing that we love that we're excited to share with you guys, but it's also a little, you know, we like to kind of always try to be doing something a little different than last mm -hmm. month. Short stories this time going to be really interesting. Yeah. I think it's going to be a lot of fun and, and yeah, like to your point, Matt, you know, I've been, I've been reading his short stories for like a decade or something it was probably the first time I read one of them. Um, and yeah, I great. think me too. They're really probably. cool. I think we <laughs> probably both probably like came to this around in college the same or something. Time, exactly, like towards the end of college. Um, so, uh, and you know, they're they're also it's good science fiction. So I think it'll make for some good discussion. Um, Wait, is that what this is about? Science fiction. <laughs> the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Adri. <laughs> Just start in a time that, loop again. Is that who you are? <laughs> Shit, I'm in the wrong time place. travel, baby. Uh, spoilers. Uh, yeah, I guess that is. We're saying this is the spoiler-free episode. Spoilers when it comes to short stories. We're you know we're not going to talk in depth about really like much of anything about these particular short stories. There are the other ones. Uh, you know, it's going to. What a spoiler means in the context of a short story is questionable. If you're like a Matt type of like, no spoilers ever, maybe like go read this and his other short story collection first. They're great. Like if you like our recommendations, you will like these stories, at least some of them. Mm -hmm. uh, and the actually it's worth stating that the uh, named short story, Exhalation, uh, from this uh, collection is 
is also available for free at Lightspeed Magazine. So if you Google just the word exhalation, it's the first link that pops up, or maybe the second is the like free Lightspeed published online, totally legal. Uh, you can go and read that if you're kind of on the fence about any of these stories. It's um, so good. It's probably my favorite story of his, which is part of why I'm so excited about this uh, this whole project that we're doing this month. Because um, I have so much that I want to talk about about that story and the like experience of reading it for the first yeah. time is one of these like galaxy brain experiences. <laughs> it's one of the few um, things I don't read reread things very often. I have reread that short story even mm-hmm. pre this book coming out. Mm hmm. Cool. So let's uh, let's get into it a little bit. Book what are we What are we gonna get into? Book facts. Book facts. <laughs> um, so yeah, Exhalation. It was actually just published. It's still May as we're recording this. It'll obviously be June as it's released. Um, but it was just published early May. Uh, the collection was. The stories range from like new to this collection to I think the like earliest one was published in like 2008 or 2009, something like that. So there's there's a pretty wide range of like when these stories were written and published. Um, in addition, so there's nine stories. It's about 400, a little under 400 pages long, 350, something like that. And um, the stories, like the smallest is like a page long. There are a couple like flash fiction stories and the longer, there's a few like novellas in there too. So the longers are like up to a hundred pages yeah. long. So it's I a think, very wide gamut. Yeah. He, he has described in an interview uh, this collection as being everything that he has published uh, since his last collection, plus two original stories. Mm-hmm. Um, it's worth saying, you know, he's been publishing since 1990, I think. And yeah. he hasn't published that much over that period of time. He's sort of known as being his, his phrase he's published that, like 20 stories in his career. Yeah. And his, the phrase that, that he used in an interview once, which apparently derives from his wife, uh, is tantalizingly unprolific. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> I, I love that like he would hear someone else use that about him and then he would like glom onto it. Like, that's a nice way of putting that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but there are, you know, they're the kind of stories that you can tell a lot of just because they're short doesn't mean that they took a short amount of time to write or that they are like oh, yeah. frivolous oh, yeah. in any way. Um, and we'll we'll get into a little bit of that. Um, yeah, so there's nine of them in this one. Uh, they're kind of, they... You know, we call them science fiction. Uh, they're very much like this realm of science fictional story that I think of like, you know, almost kind of like Borges's more like allegorical mm-hmm. or like philosophical stories mm-hmm. or maybe like Robert Sheckley or J.G. Ballard short stories where they they're very they're they manage to be both very humanist and about like human stuff. That's a word I was going to use. Yep. And also very philosophical at the same yeah. time. Um, it's cool. Yeah. When he's talked about his influences, he's mentioned everybody from like Greg Egan and Ken McLeod to, um, Arthur C. Clarke, Isaac Asimov and John Crowley, author of Little Big is apparently a a big, uh, an author he loves at a prose level. Um, and John Crowley uh, is not known as a science fiction author, although he, um, is, you know, sometimes, um, collected in in discussions of sci-fi authors because he writes fantasy um but he's a he's a a renowned uh sort of literary fantasy author um and and uh 
uh, also a teacher. That's cool. I didn't, I didn't know that. That's really neat. You've probably read more interviews with him than I have. I've read like one interview with him and I stopped actually because I enjoy his stories as their own so much that I've never done all that much research on him. He's one of the few guys I don't often want to know about authors mm-hmm. who I like. There are a lot of authors who I like who I don't kind of I kind of purposely avoid knowing too much about their lives because I'm totally because of what you just said I think you know I, I want to focus sort of on the art not the artist but this for whatever reason Ted Chang has always seemed to me like the sort of person who I would really like to know interesting <laughs> and so I I want to know about him for that reason almost separate from his work <laughs> no that that makes a lot of sense to me um it is funny given that he's like a relatively private person and doesn't talk a lot about like himself in his interviews or about, you yeah. know, what he does or that kind of thing. Yeah. We'll put some links in the show notes to a couple of these interviews because there's some really good Absolutely. ones. Absolutely. Um, there's one that he did recently uh, for Powell's, the famous San Francisco bookstore. That's, that's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's also worth saying about him. I don't think we've mentioned this yet, but he is a very highly decorated author. He's won and been nominated for an enormous number of awards. Yeah. Just in this collection alone four of the stories have been nominated at least for hugos and three of them have won hugos um that's a lot (laughs) yeah yeah four out of the nine stories have hugo nominations uh three you know one third have won um he he when he writes a short story it often gets at least picked up for a few nominations um he also himself won the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer in 1992. Mm-hmm. Um, so he he's you know he's been winning awards since the very beginning of his career in the really mm-hmm. early 90s and continues to win them. I think I think Life Cycle of Software Objects was the most recent Hugo, I believe, and I think that was like 2014. I want to say I could I could be wrong about those specific dates, but he's prolific in that stuff. Yeah. Another interesting thing about him is that although as soon as he started being published, he started winning awards and hasn't stopped. Um, he wasn't published until somewhat later in his life, um, mm. despite the fact that he'd been submitting for like since he was a kid. He apparently had been oh, has, has written written stuff and tried to submit things to stuff uh, since he was like in elementary school, um, but didn't really succeed at getting published until he was uh, at least in his thirties, if not older. That's so cool. It is cool. It's really really cool, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah. And he, he, you know, it's also, I guess, worth pointing out, he's won like BAFSA's, Hugo's, Locus, Nebula's, uh, World Fantasy Awards. I don't know if he's ever won the James Tiptree Award. He's been nominated a couple of times. Um, And so it's like it runs the gamut of like essentially all the the sci-fi awards that focus on short fiction at least. It's so one another thing that's really interesting to me that he's said in interviews about his work, um, discussing the 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 kind of slow pace of his own output. He has said that it took a long time for him to consider himself a writer instead of a person trying to be a writer. Interesting, because he felt like it was always and continues to be really hard for him to write or put another way easy for him to not write and now like obviously (laughs) if if you've ever talked to writers or if you've ever done a writing class or if you've ever been in the world you've heard the advice given to people who want to be writers just write and then you're a writer um that is easier or harder uh depending on your circumstances and he has said uh more than once that he 
considers writing to be difficult to continue doing. There was a period after his, after his like first stuff came out, and he won those awards in 1990 or 91 or 92 or whatever. Yeah, he, he didn't write didn't for a publish. while. Yeah, he didn't, publish, he didn't publish for like at least for a while. He also wasn't writing apparently. All. Okay, he was focusing on his like day job as a as a technical documentation writer. Right for for software. Right. Um, which yeah, because he has a computer science degree and has been both a developer and a technical writer. Um, I just think it's it's really interesting to to consider how difficult it's been for him at some time I mean, and, and how open he is about that fact. I mean, mm-hmm. there are a lot of um, there are a lot of writers who have a very different experience, uh, who have very different ex- writers have very different experiences. <laughs> right. And it's cool to 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 encounter this one. Totally. And he, you know, I, 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 so I, again, I've, I've read less of this, but the sense I've gotten from what I have read, like from him about himself is that he is, you know, oh, I, I guess like both a combination of like, like humble and very thoughtful about his own mm. work. Like his work is smart and it doesn't just happen to be, it's because he puts a lot of effort into making it both very readable and very smart, um, which I appreciate. I think it, it really comes through and it is interesting to hear the sort of, you know, I think this thing that I, I know I can do of like the, 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 you know, even, even winning the top awards in his field, he's still like, well, I'm not good enough. Um, oh, you man, know, that's I know, super right? relatable. <laughs> totally. So this is another weird random thing that I didn't tell Adrian that I wanted to talk about, but it mainly just has just occurred to me just now. So get ready. So this reminded me of an interview, just what we were just saying right now mm-hmm. about Ted Chang reminded me of an interview that I read with Walter Mosley or Mosley. I don't know how to say his name, who is a uh, very famous uh, writer of, I mean, he's most famous for the mysteries that he's written. Oh, um, okay. That's why that name sounds Yeah. Familiar. Like Devil in a Blue Dress. So the, yeah, the easy yeah. Rollins mysteries, but he's written a bunch of other books too. Um, sort of in the, in the spirit of, um, you know, like a, a Sam Spade or okay, Philip Marlowe, sure. yeah, but yeah. with a, he's a black man and his protagonist is a black man in Los Angeles and he mm. deals with a lot of like, it's anyway, really cool stuff. But anyway, he was interviewed and he, in the interview talked about how he didn't have success publishing his work until he was in his like late thirties. And prior to that, he considered himself a failure. And he's, he has this line in the interview where he says that if once you have considered yourself a failure, you will never not consider yourself a failure, no matter what success comes to you. And if once you have considered yourself a success, you will never not consider yourself a success, no matter what failure comes to you. And it's just, it's, I can't stop thinking of that because it's so, it's, it seems to be something really true about that. Um, and I, I almost think, I almost wonder if, if Ted Chang doesn't have that, that thought. <laughs> right. That, I mean... I don't that, I don't want to say that he was a failure before he was published. That's silly, but No, but that I mean like just, you know, personally I feel like that quote cu- cuts close to home. So Yeah. That's cool. So I think there's also um just a, a few more kind of points about this collection. You know, I guess I guess the big one which we kind of mentioned a little bit already is that like his previous collection has had a like movie made out of it. Mm. I mean, it was like a, I don't know if it actually, I was going to say award winning. I don't, I don't remember if it has actually won awards, but it was 
a really cool movie. Uh, I really liked it at least. And it's, I, I particularly really like that, um, story because it's a story about linguistics, which as you know, regular readers knows what I studied in college. And like, I get really nerdy about, um, and it's one of the like better, I think, uh, kind of science fictional depictions of language and linguistics. Um, so for that to get made into this really kind of like, you know, humanist science fiction movie was like a fun, I saw it in theaters and really, really dug it. I like it too. I think we could have a whole thing about that. So maybe leave that to the side. Yeah, we'll, we'll sidebar that for now. I, I just like kind of talking about like pop culture adaptations oh, yeah, when totally. like when they exist. And this is one where, you know, it doesn't for this book, but it does yeah. for Ted generally. I will just say really quick, Jeremy Renner as a Ted Chang character never would have seen that coming. Yeah, that's maybe the <laughs> maybe the least successful part of that movie for me, but you know. <laughs> I like the right. Maybe Amy Adams yeah, is yeah, like just, the best. Just, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got I got you there. <laughs> uh, let's see. I guess is there sort of anything else about uh Chang himself? I, I guess it is worth point out he he is he is um american himself his parents were both born in china moved to taiwan during the communist revolution the new york where where ted was born um and so he has this sort of like that is like a piece of background information about him honestly i don't know the degree to which that like influences stories and in, in ways that i see but like matt you might see it more just given the, i you know chinese i actually have no idea i mean when i when i when i said his chinese name you know i almost do that with tongue firmly in cheek because i don't there's nothing overtly you know chinese or no overt reference to chinese culture that i recall from his stories that i've read right but that doesn't mean it's not there somewhere i have no idea what he right. what his thoughts are on his heritage right and they the, if anything the stories seem to be much more closely rooted in i i mean life cycle of software objects in particular is like much more rooted in his work in the startup and tech tech industry than in anything else and uh you know he also he 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 writes this really cool genre of story that there's less of in this collection, but there's a lot of in his first collection where he will take a particular like cultural belief um, of like a culture somewhere. And sometimes it's like modern American evangelical Christianity, or it might be like, you know, uh, like uh, Eastern European Jews or the Bible or, or, you know, kind of like Arabic, like genies and stuff. He'll take this and like treat it as real in the world in a really like cool scientific allegorical kind of way. Um, and it's interesting that he does a lot of like, kind of like European centric culture when he does that, like that's really what he focuses on in those stories, I guess, European and, middle eastern arab arabic ish um and they're really cool little like cultural snippets that he works with so he kind of like works across all of these cultures um i really like these types of stories and i yeah. i guess the very first one is one of these the first one in this um yeah collection is one of those too and arguably exhalation but we'll talk about that well yeah that's we'll that's that different that's cool yeah we'll talk about uh, post read there <laughs> I, I really want to talk about that <laughs> um 
Cool. Yeah. So I guess the, the final thing, kind of fact, factoidy thing, I mean, as folks can hopefully tell, we're really, we really dig uh, his stories. We're really excited to talk about them. Um, but he has really only published these two books, Stories of Your Life and Others is his first collection. This is his second. He's never published a novel. I don't even, I've never even heard about him writing a novel. I think the longest thing he's ever published is, um, Life Cycle of Software Objects, which is one of the stories in this collection. Um, yeah, and it's, you know, it's like he really works in this on this level of the short story, novelette, novella, whatever, but this kind of like short fiction, you know, it's not a genre, but like a, a type. Um, and it's cool because he does different things with them than you would necessarily expect a novel to do. Uh, that's part of why I was excited, you know, beyond being excited to read these particular stories and talk about Ted Chang and his the way he does sci-fi and everything. Um, I thought it would be really fun to kind of talk about, you know, and talk about specific short stories, but also generally like short story as a like medium and like how it differs from like longer fiction. Uh, Cause it's cool. It can do cool, weird, different things. I think um, totally. that, that he does a lot of, um, and he's a very good example of that, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's actually one other thing. So that reminds me of a thing. And uh, this is also <laughs> this is also something that Walter Mosley said <laughs> in this interview that I read with Walter Mosley. This is like a weird thing, but it's just such a beautiful thing. And it's it's about exactly what you're just saying, Adrian. This is not way off in left field. So, OK, short stories. Um, the I love nature how you of... preamble the thing when you could just say the thing. And then... <laughs> yeah. All right. I want to. Well, so but I want to quote Mosley. Right. I, I have right. this quote by, uh, of Walter Mosley talking about novels versus short stories. Okay. Mm -hmm. A novel is like a mountain, like Mount Rainier. You ever seen Mount Rainier? It's like you're looking at God. It's so gorgeous and dynamic and powerful and meaningful. Then as you walk toward it, things change. At one point, it's not even a mountain anymore. There's an incline, mm -hmm. but you don't see the whole thing. There mm -hmm. are different levels. When you get to the top, you look out from the mountain and it's just as majestic because now you're looking from God's point of view. Mm -hmm. So the novel is a mountain. Now the short story is an island. Some trees and a beach and a little creature running around. You go <laughs> on the island, but then you realize that underneath it is a mountain. But it's just underwater, so you never see it. You have to describe the whole mountain, but only from the point of view of that island. Whatever detritus gets washed up, whatever the weather is there, whatever's happening underneath, you have to somehow give that to the reader without making it explicit. That's delicious. I, I thought you'd that. like that. I love that so much. <laughs> I love that so much. I know, it, right? Weirdly, it, I, I'm not going to go there. It reminds me of a video game, weirdly. But like, why would you not go there? Go there. <laughs> it's just just thinking about this picture of like a desert island, sort of like you know, the, but that's just this tip of this much deeper thing. Reminds me of this uh, video game I play every now and again, where you you know play like a shipwreck or a plane crash survivor on these like deserted like archipelago of islands, and just like this feeling of like you know, kind of seeing an island from afar and getting to it. And like, there's a couple of creatures, there's like limited resources on it, but also like knowing that like in the abyss in the like depths below, there's like so much more that you can't even like, you know, you can't get to, but it's like there and it's mysterious and it's dark and it's scary and it's dangerous. Um, you know, and it's like, you get to have the like fun little sunny, like tippy top, but there's everything else underneath. And that's, you know, that's just so much what a good short story is. That is like perfect quote. <laughs> it's great. 
Yeah. So Adrian, what is your relationship to short stories as opposed to novels? Yeah, that's a good question. I, um, when I was younger, so I, you know, I kind of think about my science fiction reading as coming in like two pieces. There's the like pre-college and post-college. Like during college, I didn't read just like fiction a lot. And what I did was usually for class or whatever. Um, and so when I was a kid, there's like being a kid in Alaska and reading science fiction. And I read a lot of short fiction during that time. And some of it, a lot of it was like collections. Um, I believe I have read every single short story that Isaac Asimov has ever published because I read his like complete, you know, stories back to back. I read all the ABC stories. I, I've, I've read so much. Um, same with Clark. Uh, same with a lot of the kind of like very classic, like golden age science fiction guys. Um, By the way, all of those guys were people that Ted, who Ted Chang read and loved as a kid as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, um, you know, another thing I got into, um, you know, at that point was in so much as I read more modern science fiction, like in the early 2000s or in the late 90s or whatever, that was actually usually in this form of like, you know, years best anthology type stuff, or maybe like, you know, themed anthologies or whatever, just because that's what my local library had more of. They are more likely to pick up like a modern, you know, kind of like best of Asimov science, like Asimov's the uh, magazine, not Asimov, the writer or best of, you know, sort of like best of science fiction this year. Like, and so that was, you know, sort of like the like cyberpunk or more like modern fiction that I read at that point was all in short story format. Um, and so short stories were often to me, like I liked puzzly short stories. I really, you know, I really liked the way that I could like get into a collection, something maybe like the Martian Chronicles and get like a larger story, but with each with short stories in it or just go into something and read like a bunch of different authors with like all sorts of crazy stuff going on and know that whenever I finished one, I get to like a new one that's totally different. So <laughs> I had, I, I, I read a lot of short stories in addition to all the novels I read growing up. Um, and when I started reading, you know, science fiction again, as an adult, I, um, actually subscribed to science fiction and fantasy magazine for a little while. Uh, I read a, I feel like now, like the last couple of years, I've read far fewer short stories, but there was a good point in time there where I was buying a lot of short story collections. Again, a lot of the like year's bests type stuff. Um, like there's, there's some I like more than others. I'll, I'll, I'll post links to the, the ones I enjoy a lot in the, um, in the show notes. Uh, and I also, I started getting more into buying a short story collection by a single author, um, and getting to read a lot of like the different kinds of things that author is um, working with. But actually, one author whose short story collection I, I read uh, and liked a lot was Chris Beckett, who we just had on um, two months ago on the podcast. And we, you know, we read his novel. But, you know, like I've I've picked up these short story collections because it's a fun way to get to like know an author and a lot of different facets of what they think about and what they like to think about and what they you know what they might not be able to pat out into an entire novel but what they you know like these ideas that come to them um 
Uh, another author who's been on our podcast, Tobias Buckel, I've really enjoyed his short stories a whole lot um, more recently. I subscribe to his Patreon, which is really cool, and he publishes a short story essentially every month there um, and kind of like does collections of them every year and stuff like that. And so uh, th- those are that's actually totally worth reading, too. Um, I think he does good a call. really yeah. good job of like like he's very good. Crafting a good short story is a different skill than crafting a good novel, right? Mm-hmm. Like crafting yeah. a good short story requires being able to like tell a lot in a small number of words. I think in some ways a good short story is like, I don't want to say harder than a novel, but it's absolutely it's different. a different skill. And like totally those authors who are really good at it are, are very impressive to me. I totally agree with that. I think you know, one of the, there's an interesting thing where some of these distinctions uh, change from generation to generation or they get alighted in different contexts. So for example, a lot of golden age sci-fi started life as serialized, uh, mm-hmm. serialized novels or as a short story or as a novella. Totally. And then, you know, from our modern perspective, it's all gotten mushed into the category of novel. So like something like, you know, Foundation, for example, or... Right. Um, uh, Martian Chronicles. Martian Chronicles, right. A lot of the real sort of most famous Golden Age sci-fi books, we think of them as books, as though they mm-hmm. are like th- these sort of atomic units, but they were not, you know, as originally conceived. Right. And a lot of the Golden Age sci-fi authors were not really novelists in the same way that we think of, you know, 19th century novelists who are writing, you know, with the exception of the of the serializers, but like mm-hmm. the the people writing the gigantic tomes, um, right. they well, they weren't doing that. like Bradbury wrote like one actual novel ever. I mean, all of his like books are essentially short story collections, even the ones that yeah. are like written yeah. in that way in the first place. Yeah, and but like a novel like Childhood's End is really short. Or mm-hmm. Starship Troopers. Those are short. They they're mm-hmm. almost novellas. I mean, you could call them a novella, right? Right, right. Well, and you know, Heinlein later on started writing like big <laughs> fucking weirdo bricks. <laughs> yeah, you but know, you, you, I do think you see the phenomena, the phenomenon Absolutely. where they aren't necessarily as good at writing longer things, and then mm. some novelists who write longer things typically aren't necessarily as good at writing shorter things. Yeah, that's something you definitely see. What's what's your experience with the with short stories and sci-fi short stories in particular? I think I love it's funny because I think of myself as somebody who doesn't read short stories, but everything you listed as having loved as a kid, I, I have read and loved as a kid also. <laughs> and and so yeah, I, I guess I guess I, I don't think of them often as a separate thing, but I, I suppose it turns out I, I read them all the time. Like, I don't yeah. know. James, James Tiptree is another one who I'll, I'll mention as somebody who, yeah, short stories you've are talked awesome her and, up to me a whole bunch. I've still never yes. read one of her short stories or like one of her collections. Very, right? very interesting. Also relevant to a discussion of Ted Chiang. Um, mm-hmm. she well, I mean, is, he's been nominated for the right, award named for after the her. award <laughs> named after her, her pen name. Um, Kate Shepard is the real name of the, the mm-hmm. woman who went by, who used the pen name James Tiptree. Um, and she is also a golden age author who's, you know, written a huge volume of, and she didn't write novels. As far as I know, she never wrote a novel. Um, I could mm-hmm. be wrong about that, but I don't think she did. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. Right. Maybe I almost think of, one. yeah, I almost think of there's, there are these contexts for, for different kinds of stories. Like a lot of the stories of the golden age came out of the 
the magazines, the pulp magazines. And I was just so, going to say that like in a lot of ways, science fiction as it exists now, like came out of the pulp short story magazine. I mean, mm -hmm. like science fiction kind of like started as short stories. Yeah. What we think of as sci-fi, you know, when thought of as a, as a set of lineages, you know, descends directly from the early pulps. And that's yeah. why... I mean, this is, goes to our discussion uh, last month with uh, the women from Reading from the End, the Jennies, about the nature of science fiction as a genre and the the ways it can be exclusionary and, and the ways Absolutely. that the canon created by the original sort of pulp magazine editors and authors excludes a lot of people who actually are writing stories that are really similar. So, I mean, so many people historically define science fiction exactly as those things which are descended from the pulps and not mm -hmm. as anything else and mm -hmm. by that definition i mean you know it's it's necessarily very exclusionary and, and like leaves out a lot of stuff that for example was written by women pre-pulps or during pulps but right. not published in the pulps <laughs> right you know or like leaves out. out stuff like you know nanetti okarafor who we've also right. read on this podcast and you know has herself talked about like she didn't read any of those stories because she felt excluded by them and like what the stuff she writes is you know like from her and yeah. from her like african background and, and her literary totally. background and not descended from the same yeah thing my, my favorite examples of this are um w.e.b du bois uh wrote science mm -hmm. fiction before world war one um, that was never published in, in, well, actually there might've been one or two of them that were published in pulps, but he was, he never became famous for that. And a lot of it wasn't published in the pulps, but it, it, you know, in all ways is the same kind of story as the stories that were published in the pulps. It's just, it just so happens that it wasn't mm -hmm. made famous in that way. And it wasn't, um, promulgated by the, you know, the, the Joseph Campbell's of the world. Right. Um, that said, I I do or John Campbell, I think you mean. Yeah, yeah, that's right. John Campbell, not Joseph, different guy. Uh, that said, I I do think that you know Chang's stories in particular really do descend from the pulp stories. Yes, they do. Like, they he's do. Directly I think that's right. in dialogue with with these. Yeah. Um, in particular, I do want to shout out someone who I I. Uh, who I, I like when I think of Ted Chiang and I think of like precursors to Ted Chiang, the person I think the most of is Robert Sheckley, mm. uh, who was very famous in his time in the like, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, particularly in the 50s was publishing short stories that I think were like a major precursor to the later new age science fiction movement of the 70s. Um, and are stories that very much fit the kind of like Chang mold of being allegorical of being kind of like making you see things from a different angle, like poking at your kind of perception of the world and trying to get you to like, see some like deeper truths by like putting a prism up to it and like flipping everything upside down. Um, and uh, he also he has a collection called The Store of the Worlds that I think is published by the and New York Review of Books Press that is like totally worth Ooh, picking up. Um, really great retrospective of him. There's also some like essays about him. It kind of puts him in context um, because I think that his his stories for me are like in some way one of the best precursors. And it's also this interesting, you know, I me mean, again, like uh, golden age science fiction author 
um, very well known at his time. Uh, if you listen to like kind of like old radio dramas like X minus one or Dimension X, like his stories might pop up there. Uh, but he I think he wrote like maybe one or two novels later in his life. He was never like known as a novelist and he's kind of like forgotten in a lot of ways because of this yeah uh, the only thing i'll say is i have brought up his his uh wikipedia page here he has written actually a a, a lot of novels but oh right i right. think you're absolutely right about him being totally forgotten and not known for that this is what i remember from like yeah, you know, yeah this yeah. this collection and me reading more about him later was that he was writing short stories much earlier and was like very well known for it yeah and partially because he's like so good at crafting these little like fuck you up kind of stories <laughs> like these little stories that you read them and you feel like you just like gained new like knowledge and power about the world it's so the interesting thing about him is how much he was forgotten versus how well known he was yes exactly. you know it's totally. a weird thing like because he by the end of his career he was writing like novelizations for star trek and babylon 5 mm-hmm which is in the 90s. Mm -hmm. But he was, you know, that's that's sort of, I think, incorrectly considered to be a kind of lower brow of thing to do. Um, I don't think that's a fair way to think about it, but I do think that's probably how a lot of people do think about it. Totally. Um, and um, and yet, like, he was nominated for Hugos and, and Nebulas and stuff, although I don't know that he actually won. I don't know if he ever not won that a Hugo. that's I mean, you know, whatever, right? Like it's right. awards are awards and, and that's just, you know, but he was definitely in the pantheon of short story writers, you know, who like well-respected short story writers throughout the 50s and 60s. Mm. He had like a good like, you know, Word. 25, 30 year run there. Um, and even some of his like 70 short stories got really big and stuff. So it's a it is. Yeah, I think it's like in some ways these kinds of, you know, those who didn't necessarily have their short story, like have their books be really like popular and get known for their novels or have their short stories packaged in these sort of like you know like the way bradbury did um or the way yeah. asimov did with the yeah. foundation short stories or whatever like it sort of like got lost to time a little bit or maybe some yeah. folks like tip tree because of her background or jg ballard because i guess ballard both has also got published in the literary press as well as the mm -hmm. pulp press and then also wrote a bunch of novels um so he kind of like sits in this weird you know place yeah i would say sheckley and ballard remind so me a lot it's, of each it's other. actually really interesting so i i've mentioned tiptree already tiptree is a big one um mm. i also think uh the the, the author who like i think of the most when i read Chang is borges Oh, absolutely. Yes. I, and that's actually the the sort of number one thing I go to right away. I mean, that's and, kind of like the er example almost. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think that they're really, really similar, mm -hmm. except that what Borges does with literary criticism, Ted Chang does with science. Yep. Right. Like they're both working with kind of like different aspects of like philosophy. Yeah. But they're both, they both sort of, it almost seems like they approach a short story in the same way. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. they want to use a short story as a way of investigating with a keen eye for empathy, the nature of people confronting philosophical problems as though they were real. Mm -hmm. um, they both write kind of philosophical, like thought experiments in the forms of like literary yeah. short stories. Yeah, exactly. It's just that um, Ted Chang, whereas Borges will use 
like ideas from the world of literary criticism, which of course, I mean, in the broadest sense is like everything from, you know, Lucretius to Jung to, to Derrida, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. To, uh, where, uh, but uh, conversely, Ted Chang will, will use things from, from computer science or linguistics or, or, or uh, physics or physics. Mm -hmm. you know but also from the bible <laughs> right, right. Well, they both, also, that's an overlap <laughs> right that's an area yeah. of overlap <laughs> <laughs> um yeah I, I mean like i don't i do kind of i think like ted chang is interested in like science as a subset of philosophy almost or like philosophy of science largely yeah, he, he clearly is I, I i also think it's it's not completely fair uh fair to say that borges isn't interested isn't, in that stuff right right but um I, I'm more I'm more thinking almost of like the affect, like the the literal language they use as part of their investigation. Like Ted Chang will will often sort of make up pseudoscientific like explanations of things. Like he'll he'll sort of like try to get as detailed and crunchy as he can explaining something that's not real. Yeah, yeah. I Borges love that. will will do that, but he'll use the language instead of the language of 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 like chemistry or physics. He'll use um, the language of like epistemology, right? exactly or semiotics yeah or meta metaphysics or something no yeah. i it absolutely i think that you know i think that's absolutely the right pull like you know for all that chang is descended from the pulps like he's descended from borges and he you know it's like there's right. also a degree to which i think even you know I, I don't want to like go too far down this or too far up my own ass potentially, <laughs> but like, you know, when I, when I think of like, uh, Ballard or Sheckley or, or even like even, uh, Bradbury, I do think of them as being descended from Borges in a really important way too. Um, I don't know if there's actually like a lineage there, but I think of their short stories as also attempting to do some of the same types of things. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's a lineage, a direct lineage, but certainly like there's a relationship. Mm -hmm, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I'm into that. Right. And Chang is absolutely though, sort of like a synthesis of these things. Yeah. Um, another person Which I want to- great. Yeah. I love that. I love synthesis. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> I, I also wanted to mention real quick, um, because it's an, not because it's super similar to him, but because it's an interesting comparison. Um, Kazuo Ishiguro, who right. is the 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 British no, uh, novelist famous for um, Remains of the Day, but also has written science fiction. Oh, so he, didn't he also write Never Let Me Go? That's right, he did. Okay. Um, so, you know, he's a guy who straddles the line between literary fiction and science fiction and like traditional science fiction mm -hmm. in a way that I think is similar to a John Crowley or Ted Chiang. Um, mm -hmm. They have this literary sensibility, which is to say that they're interested in prose at a sentence level in a way that I think is sort of similar to each other. Um, you know, getting, getting, we don't actually talk about, well, we do talk about sentence level stuff, but, but so far in this conversation, we haven't really right. talked about sentence level stuff. <laughs> and I think that's the, the most interesting sense in which they're similar. Yeah, no, that's so I haven't read any of Ishiguro's work, uh, but that that's really interesting to know because um, he's he's always been sort of like one of these like gaps in my knowledge, I think particularly because I, I like 
literary science fictional. I mean, like this was the whole discussion I had on the reading the end podcast uh, with, 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 with <laughs> yeah. the one from there was about literary science fiction. So yeah, I think you've listened yeah. to that. You know, that's like my jam. Um, part of why I, think you I know, already knew that. <laughs> right. I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we, we, we've talked about this a bunch. Um, yeah, actually kind of in the literary science fiction thing, you know, something, another piece like poll I've been kind of having, um, is david mitchell mm-hmm. um and you know in particular because he writes he writes novels that are in the form of short stories which is kind of like right. almost like the opposite of some of right. this other stuff that we're talking which is like short stories that get collected into novels like he writes these like things that are definitely like designed as novels but like com- made up of components that are short stories mm-hmm. instead of components that are like chapters mm-hmm. or something or right. something else um it's interesting the question of like in what way is Ted Chiang a literary author? Because I think you and I would both agree that he is to a large degree. Mm-hmm. That said, he's been published by science fiction journals. He's been published by by well, not exclusively because he's also been published by scientific journals. Oh, right. Like he has several yes. <laughs> times had short stories published yes, in actual scientific journals that's when they true. like try to get fiction published there. But um, the point being, he hasn't been published in these sort of lit fic journals. No, but there's something very literary about the way that he writes. And I think you're mm-hmm. right that it's largely on the prose level and it's largely, you know, I, that's kind of why I keep bringing up Ballard in particular is it kind of sits on this sort of like science fiction, literary fiction kind of like edge in some way. Um, and I think I think the other way probably that Chang it fits in this is that, you know, I think in, I, I don't want to overstate my knowledge of this stuff. But when I think of like, you know, something like Arrival, the movie that was based on his work, like the kind of criticism he gets, like the kind of people who pay attention to his work are not necessarily paying attention to science fiction broadly. They're paying attention to like literature broadly, right? Mm-hmm. Like he'll get written up in like the, the, the L.A. review of books in a way that like other mm-hmm. science fiction authors might not. Mm-hmm. It is interesting that we could have a whole discussion about how, about which authors and for what reason get invited to like be interviewed by the Paris Review or by right. like the, or the have LARB like or the, the NERB. Or even the New York Times, you know? Yeah. yeah. Like um, I've, I've said like the New York Times has been not, not even like reviewing his book, but reporting on the fact that the book is coming out, right? right. Like they're very right. invested in his career. Right. Um, And they've chosen for some reason like him over other science fiction authors for that. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, if if you feel good about this discussion of similar books, I'm going to suggest that maybe we'll move on to a little game. That yeah, let's we're going do it. to round out the uh, pre-read language so, games, baby. Language games, indeed. So, so Ted Chang, as we've discussed, is is a very philosophically minded writer. Um, he cares about philosophical, like big philosophical problems, um, classic philosophical problems of the sort that you know, if you've ever taken an intro philosophy class, you'll have encountered. And mm-hmm. so, I thought it might be fun if we had a quick little game where we quickly riff on some of these big problems that we may well encounter <laughs> in the exhalation. <laughs> may well indeed. Let's do and it. And so I will put you on the spot, Adrian. <laughs> the problem of free will. Do you have any thoughts? Um, one of my thoughts is that I do like, you know, we haven't done the like 
Matt puts Adrian on the spot with a weird question <laughs> thing in a while. So I'm really enjoying the podcast throwback. Do you even do you even have the free will to enjoy anything? Are you just a um, machine? Yeah. Are you are you asking me like what I think? Yes. I think that we one must believe in free will. Um, <laughs> that implies you think it's a phony baloney facade. <laughs> yeah, there's it's this is actually one that's somewhat hard for me to answer um, because there is a very like one of the flash fiction pieces in this collection is specifically about this question. And um, I tend to, if not full on agree with it, like very much like understand its point of view and i don't want to mm. say too much about uh, that okay. which we'll is like okay. give away that story well, that's, in a weird that's way. fair i'll, I'll say um, something but, uh, yeah, if you want please, yeah please do um, yeah so i mean to, i haven't read that particular flash fiction thing so i can't mm-hmm. possibly spoil it except in, inadvertently mm-hmm. um so i mean you know there's a lot of ways you could start talking about free will um but one thing that i think about a lot in my own life that i go back and forth about is thinking about it from this perspective of responsibility for stuff. Um, So, you know, very often in our lives, we're confronted with the question of, you know, is so-and-so responsible for X? Like, you know, and there's a lot of different ways of framing that, you know, but it's an important question because like Mm -hmm. a lot of things in a lot of decisions that we make um, depend on what, who, who we think is responsible for something or, or what we think is responsible for something. Um, Mm -hmm. And if you think about that for a few minutes, you'll, you'll quickly, you know, come to the obvious fact that um, people have different levels of response, like something could have a different degrees of responsibility for something else, which right. is to say it could cause it to a greater or lesser extent. You know, if you um, drop, if, if I tell you, Adrian, to go to like a, you know, second story window and drop an apple out the window and you then do that. Um, like who is responsible for the apple being dropped is a question that we could decide in different ways. We could say that Adrian is responsible. We could say that I'm responsible because I told him, or we could say mm-hmm. that neither of us is responsible, mm-hmm. you know, because the re- only reason I told him is because it's my nature to tell Adrian <laughs> to do things. Right. And the only reason <laughs> I did it is because it's my nature to follow. Right. And, and like, and that's the sound, it sounds like we've already gotten into, into bullshit territory. Or like you know, one AM dorm room territory, but or, or like very real like legal questions. Right, that's that like exactly what I was deals with constantly. Exactly. That's exactly what I was about to say. I mean, I think it's easy to think of this problem of, of the question of free will as this like thing that doesn't actually matter. That's just something you mm-hmm. talk about late mm-hmm. at night, but it does matter. It matters a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, when we think when we get past the question of is there free will, yes or no, like there's there's a lot of you know, aspects of the discussion that are extremely relevant. And and right. so this is one of those ways that science fiction can be really helpful to us in, in, in like thinking about the world. Like if it gets us to think about this very real and sticky problem in a slightly different way, we could get a lot of leverage out of that. Mm-hmm. I think of it almost as like, you know, like imaginary case studies for a <laughs> legal course, right? Like, yeah, but, but, like let's, but actually, let's really put our beliefs in the most extreme situations, not just possible, but even like the most extreme situations that yeah. we can imagine um, and see and see where they go from there and see what our intuitions do in those situations. Um, and, you know, sometimes our intuitions might break in ways that we say, 
well, okay, they broke in this extreme thing, but that doesn't mean they're not actually the right intuitions in most everyday situation too. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Just because and like Newton's laws of physics break down in certain places don't mean that it's not actually just best to use them in others because it's a lot easier that way. Right. And just because you can easily say, oh man, well, if you think too hard about you know, who's responsible for stuff. If you get too far away from the person that actually pulled the trigger, like you're just wasting your time. Well, mm -hmm. okay, maybe sometimes, but right. other times, no. But it like, also depends on like, what problem are you trying to solve? Are you trying to solve like, you know, who do you put in jail for like a particular murder? Then like, yeah, you're looking at who pulled the trigger. Are you trying to like prevent murders generally? Are you trying to ask the yeah, question of like, exactly. is prison the right thing to do yeah ever like what right. should you know a justice system look like in the first yeah. place well that's those those questions become a lot more important at that yeah. point to bring it to a, a, a just i'll we'll leave this quickly shortly but just to bring it to a um a, a very relevant political question right now a lot of people are upset about the way that political discourse works in our in in our world today mm-hmm and people have very different opinions about what or who is responsible. And I think that is a question that really gets at issues of free will immediately mm -hmm. because a lot of people want to blame platforms or they want to blame the people who founded the companies that run those platforms. Sure. Or they want to blame the individuals on the platform saying certain things. And like that disagreement is a profound disagreement that has serious implications for what mm -hmm. we do about this issue if we think it's an issue you know i do i do really like reframing the question of free will of not one of like oh well is there like quantum mechanics happening in our neurons <laughs> or like what is determinism and rather much more about like larger societal effects because this is how i tend to think about these questions yeah yeah i mean th there's also interesting just like i said there's a lot of ways to approach it there's also interesting discussions to be had about physics i think but uh, yeah. i don't know how interesting they are but <laughs> <laughs> that's like your opinion man yeah right. that is my now, opinion man adrian okay i have another one dose. for you okay number two what do you think about the problem of evil so I, I, you'd, you'd written these down, so I saw them. And I'm curious for you to define what you mean mm. by this question specifically. Sure. The problem of evil is, um, why do bad things happen to good people? I mean, there's a lot of ways to frame it, but like, I'll, right, I'll, right. I'll put it And that's why I'm way. asking, like, what is your framing yeah. here? Okay. Yeah, I, I will choose to. So if, usually it's a religious problem and, and it comes from right. the Christian tradition Right. Discussions and that's part of, of what I'm getting at is like, yeah. are we talking about ethics? Are we talking about morality? Like kind of like what right. angle are we attacking this right. question? Right. At? And I, I will, I will try to frame it in a uh, sort of nom, uh, like a fuzzy bullshit, non-denominational, you know, but still theological for, but still interesting question. question way. Um, right. I'll frame it like this. Um, how do we come to terms with the fact that evil things seem to happen for no obvious reason or why oh, do we well, think evil things thing happen? I would right. Like I would reject the idea that they happen for no obvious okay, reason. Sure. Right. That's why I, I changed that. Um, you know, I mean, because... the reason is obviously capitalism, <laughs> <laughs> but okay. But, but how, I mean, how no, do we, but... <laughs> how do we, how do we deal with living in a world where evil happens? Right. 
Yeah, I mean, this is a, you know, this is one of these what ones makes that where, okay, like, or does anything make it okay? so much easier to answer within a religious context in some ways, because you can really tightly define what what evil is. I, th- I think that, you know, in some ways, the atheist has a harder problem with this question, because the question becomes like, well, what is evil? Like, That's how a super do we fascinating way to put it. Um, you know, how do we decide what is like evil versus just like unfortunate? Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, well, I, you the, could bypass that question. I mean, that's probably what I would do. Right. I, I know. Whereas I think I, I don't, you know, I don't know if I do bypass. I think I used to. Right. I think mm. I used to bypass the question and be like, well, evil isn't really a thing. You know, it's more it's more about like the effects on the world. Blah, blah, blah. But like, you know, I think to try to get at what you're answering or what you're asking here is like, you know, the reason evil exists is because like people are selfish. <laughs> right like i mean that's that's really the way i think it, but like and and you know selfishness is not always bad um but the fact of people like worrying more about themselves than mm. about their effects of their action on other people is you know like that w- the the capitalism joke is like part of this is is you know is but is but also actually that like you know we live in a system that rewards monetarily with like the, 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 you know, the, the actual value of our system is one that is based on like taking as much as you can for yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, and that causes a lot of problems, you know, right? Like in some ways the, the philosophical question of the tragedy of the commons, right. Is one that can only exist within certain societal constraints, right? Like, we we have the the tragedy of the commons the idea that like oh well like land that isn't owned by anyone like to everyone kind of like mistreats it because no one like no one like if you go and reap as many benefits as you can then you won't get the like negative side effect the negative side effects are like amortized across everyone but the positive side effects like you can take for yourself um and you know like that is true in a situation where like you know private ownership of land happens or that you know Whereas it's like maybe not true in a system where we like think of ownership differently. It's maybe not true in a system where we punish that kind of behavior, where we, you know, build those externalities into society instead of like letting them kind of like exist as free floating externalities that society Mm. as a whole just kind of like Mm. has to soak up and accept. Um, So, you know, a lot of when I think about evil, you know, I mean, I think it's easy to think about stuff like, uh, you know, racism or whatever it's easy to think about this kind of human stuff but i think it's also important to think about stuff like climate change like is climate mm. change evil like i think in I, some I ways we, i can, i don't we can think say that yes. question makes sense <laughs> i i think it does because i think climate change in so much as it is like caused by us in so much as it is caused by people being greedy yeah but you're is you're evil. you're describing something like, uh, so, okay, I'll, I'll say quickly how I interact with the problem of evil on a personal level. I don't think evil is a thing. Um, right. I think it's, you know, the, the way that I use that word in, uh, you know, the common, my common sense definition of evil is just like things that are bad. Um, and I don't, I don't think there's a distinction between things that are bad and like other things that are bad, except perhaps the degree of badness. You know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I and I don't think that like once you pass some like arbitrary threshold of degree of badness, it becomes like a different ca- 
category of thing. It's still just bad. Well, that's not what I'm arguing for. Yeah. But in other words, I, I don't think there's, um, like, I think, um, badness to, 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 you know, I prefer that word perhaps because it's more, it's more obviously not like this Christian concept right. or like some, some like, you know, religious concept, badness. You're uh, doing the thing you love to do, which is give me a question be like, you answered the wrong question. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, I mean, no, 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 no. That's not what it, I think. I, I, know, think I, know, I know. Your I know, answer I know. is good. I'm just giving you my answer, which is different. And I, it's not supposed to be a gotcha. Like, <laughs> I know it's not. It's like, just funny the, to the me. Que- like my answer is also like kind of avoids the question entirely because the question right. actually comes out of this tradition that we're sort of both sidestepping. You know what I mean? Right. That neither of us really lives within. Right. I I I, I don't. I think evil itself is is not really a a real thing. I think that people do bad things for lots of reasons, and I think fundamentally they do bad things for lots of reasons because their motivations do not originate in. A system of moral binaries. Their motivations originate because of a very complex set of interactions that govern what they are and what they've come from. And that set of interactions is amoral. Um, And our task as things that have somehow miraculously come to be, uh, come to be aware of something called morality, our task is to sort of try to make that real. And to mm-hmm. try to create a more moral world. Um, mm-hmm. And like, I I sort of believe that with a lot of hand-waving, right? Because like, you know, you can't really get to... There's so much hand-waving required for this. <laughs> but fundamentally, I sort of reject the problem of evil with this classic... With a classic uh, a-religious framing of evil isn't a thing. And it's not a... And it's... And the thing that actually is bad stuff is uh not a problem except in the sense that we want to reduce it which is just a thing that we want to do and we should so you're taking the utilitarian view essentially i would say that this is a view that utilitarians this is similar to a view utilitarians have espoused but i don't really think of myself as a utilitarian interesting um i have a question for you philosophically do it where are you Ah, the nature of me, like what slash where, where are you? So I believe that I am a heap. Um, And as such, I am located not in any like one irreducible spot, but um, in relation to a lot of things simultaneously to varying degrees. Do you want to like, yeah. explain that a little bit for totally. the listener who might not know all the jargon that I do? <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I think that um, like when you try to think about what you are, like what is yourself, mm-hmm. what is the nature of you, mm-hmm. um, which I take to be at the heart of what you're asking. Absolutely. Yeah. The question is, you know, like kind of like where do you exist both like internally right. inside of your mind, but also externally, right. like, you know, what constitutes you? Right. Basically, I'm saying I think a lot of things constitute me. There's no one irreducible atomic thing that is me and mm-hmm. not, and like and that it ends and there's a boundary. And then like after that boundary, it's no longer me. I think right. it's just more complicated than that. But at the right. same time that I at the same time that I think that I also think that um, existence is not like 
two categories of thing, one category of which is like a consciousness and the other category is not. Like, I don't mm. think, I think that selfhood is not, does not have any privileged nature over other types oh, of being. Um, this is one of the many ways in which I disagree with David Chalmers, for example. Right, <laughs> right, absolutely. Um, and and me probably to a degree. Yeah. So, so I, this this is there's so much jargon that I'm trying to avoid. So please know, tell me if hard. I use a jargon word. Um, I think that uh, the best way to think about this is in 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 terms of John Donne's you know No Man Is an Island line. I mean, it's the easiest way I can think of to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Why am I not an irreducible thing? Well, be, for for the same reason that free will is hard to discuss, like. The reasons why I do things and the things that influence my thoughts include stuff that's in my body and stuff that's outside of my body. Right. Um, When Adrian talks, it makes me think things that I wouldn't have thought of before. Or even if I could have, I wasn't going to, you know? Mm -hmm. In that sense, like Adrian is doing the same thing to my mind that my mind is doing to itself just from further away in a more attenuated fashion, but still in a real fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that sense, like, you know, I'm more like a pile of sand. I'm a heap of stuff rather than like a thing. Because Within a single rock. Right, exactly. And it might um, have the same number of like rock molecules in it, but they're, right. you know. Right. And the other thing about a heap is that it's it's hard to say like where it ends. Like mm-hmm. you know, sure on some level right. it's it's worth it's pointing out like heap, but heap comes from this kind of question of like you know at what point does a bunch like does a like you put one piece of sand down on a piece of paper right. and you have a piece of sand. You have two and you have two pieces of sand. You have ten thousand and you have a heap of sand. And like right. what number between those is the point at which you like get a heap? That's sort of like where this this terminology right. comes from. Exactly. Um, and critically, it's not infinite you know like i'm not mm. saying that i think i'm endless i don't think right, that you're not the whole universe right i don't think that but i just think that it's really hard mm-hmm. to say exactly where i end and where i begin right just like a pile of sand on a beach right so i'm gonna i'm gonna answer this question as like because i Do think it. you kind of you you went outward a little bit you're like physically what am i right. and i think you know ultimately i agree with a lot of that the piece i think i disagree with is the you know kind of like the intersection of like ethics and morality where like when it comes to ethics i do privilege selfhood over other ways of being <clears throat> um but i think that you know another way to, an interesting way to look at this is you know looking inward and saying like you know what of the like my conscious ex- conscious experiences actually constitute me mm. right like like and this gets into the you know maybe like metzger kind of ego tunnel question um or also i think buddhist philosophy generally uh, especially like the zen philosophy that i am most aware of uh which is the question a little bit of like you know am i my experiences like what what are my experiences um am i my emotions am i the you know kind of like feelings that i have um am i maybe simply the thing that is watching these actions and emotions and experiences and thoughts um you know one of the kind of like fun and cool and weird and like really you know sort of like 
sometimes scary pieces of like doing a lot of meditation is is one of the things you get to do is you get to start to split off these pieces of yourself you get to start to see that like oh well the emotions are are their own thing and thoughts are like i'm not my thoughts like my thoughts actually kind of happen without me to agree i did to your point that like you know like you can say something matt and that will like cause a thought to arise and like is that thought me well, like, mm-hmm. I, I mean, like, uh, you know, I'm maybe having it, maybe it's a piece of me, but it's like, I, I don't exist within the thought because I'm watching the thought from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get skilled enough at this and you kind of like, you get to this point of like, oh, well, there's the watcher and like, I must be the watcher. I'm the thing watching all of this happening. But of course, you know, then the question becomes like, okay, well, what's watching the watcher? Like, how am I able to also watch this watcher watching? Right. And, and, you know, I think there's a piece, like one of the things I really do believe um, is, you know, like on the one hand, I'm a materialist and I do think that everything kind of like arises from matter. Again, Chalmers kind of like, you know, neo dualism thing doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Uh, But then on the other hand, the question of like identity of like, you know, where are you? And the question, like my answer is almost like, nowhere (laughs) like yours is like approaching like all in a lot of places and mine is almost like well i don't know what me is in a lot of like when i really get down to it like what am i like what is me like that that becomes really tricky and it's hard to say that you know i don't think i'm my brain right like i'm but but surely your brain is saying my brain but surely your brain's part of you surely that's a piece well but so but so you don't seem to be disagreeing with me though no, I'm not necessarily. I'm just trying to like come at it from a different angle. Yeah. Right. Like I'm just trying to like look, you know, for like like from outward in instead of like inward out. Yeah. Um, I find this. I'm, I'm, fa- I, like, yeah. I, like I said, I, I'm not disagreeing with you explicitly. Yeah. I do agree with you. Um, I just I just kind of like playing with this stuff because, you know, ultimately, like, you know, are we going to get to an Are we going to like solve not. the problem? No. Um, so let's like kind of play around with some of the yeah, perceptions. Yeah, yeah. That I just we have I just here. find it so interesting to think about. Like to me, what I am, like, it's very easy for me to say, is a thing part of me or not Mm -hmm. for many things. Like for a lot of the stuff that you listed, it seems obvious to me. Well, yeah, sure. That's part of me, but it's not the whole thing. Right. And so I, I, I suppose it's interesting to me that the kind of recursive watching piece is... Like, it's interesting to me how different people glom onto different parts of their own identity, mm-hmm. you know, like how, how like different parts of your own identity are interesting to a greater or lesser degree to different, right. different people. Like, I, I, I find that to be fascinating. Totally. I'll give you an example. I've had many conversations over my life where people have talked about their, the way that they feel that deep down their fear of death drives them. Mm-hmm. And this is not a thing that I've ever felt to be true of myself. Right. Um, and whenever I tell somebody who has told me that they believe to be themselves to be driven by their fear of death, um, whenever I tell somebody that they're like, they, they scoff, they, they think like, well, he's deluded. Like, <laughs> look right. at this naive guy, like who thinks that but that's also death... like, oh, they can't imagine someone else driven by things that they're not driven. by. Right. I, I, my view is that like, whether you are driven by whether you, f- what you feel about your own fear of death is a thing that varies from individual to individual. Mm-hmm. And some people among the things they feel about their fear, their own fear of death is a great fascination. Mm-hmm. And I don't particularly feel a fascination about that. I feel fascinated by other things about myself. 
Um, Do you and think about your own death very often? Sometimes. Like not in a fearful way, but I'm just curious. Sometimes. Yeah, it occurs to me. It's I don't avoid thinking about it, if that's what you mean. I, I It occurs to me all the time. Not all the time, but in the course of my life, I have thought about it many times. Mm-hmm. In different ways, in different contexts. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But it's what, not one that like drives you or is like results in a fear. I don't think so, mainly because I find it almost comforting. Mm-hmm. Knowing that I will one day not exist is sort of like knowing that I will eventually go to sleep. <laughs> I'm sorry that that like that that hit, like I get that actually. <laughs> yeah, that's why that's why I'm laughing nice. is because like that that's a, such a fine point on a thing that otherwise I would maybe not understand. But that like the, yeah. okay, I can I can I can understand how one could come from that. Like the yeah. idea, so the idea of oblivion is actually like appealing, you know, not, not it, in a like immediate suicidal, right, way, obviously, of course, but of like course. in a, you know, in a, in a like, oh good, like that'll, I'll eventually I'll have that. Yeah. Yeah. And this, for the, for the same reason, I don't completely understand why somebody would want to be immortal. Right. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's a, a whole other thing. Agree yeah. With. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, the one thing I can understand why someone would want to be immortal, like the way in which I've thought about this a lot is that like. I want to like know what happens next. Like see, this to I me is the saddest thing about death is not knowing what happens next. See, I don't, I don't mind that. Right. Again, I think like, what like, I like, would... the, like the thing I identify with a lot, you know, like on an emotional level, like not on a, like, you know, what do I philosophically think is me, but the thing that like I emotionally identify myself as like inside of my mind, not inside my brain, but inside of my mind, inside of all the different pieces that make up my mind is the knower. Right. Like that's the thing that is like me in a very big way. It's like getting to mm. know things and being able to like have information is like a very like important part of my identity. Mm. It's the idea of like not getting to know anymore, mm. not getting to see how the future stacks out anymore because the future, like, you know, like there's future that will exist for me and then there's future that will like not exist anymore for me. Interesting. And that's, I don't like that. Not that I'm afraid of it, but I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me fucking mad. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. Very interesting indeed. Yeah. Do you have a final question? This is a, these are deep waters uh, that I, that I choose to sail past for the moment. Fair, fair. <laughs> well, I think, I think we've, you know. It is late, and we have <laughs> we've interlocuted well deep into the night. <laughs> you know, someone, someone in our um, really early on in the podcast, someone left a review on iTunes that was along the lines of, you know, the the podcast is like the best late night discussions you'd have in college, and I think we really hit that platonic ideal of our podcast this evening. Matt. Oh man, platonic, huh? <laughs> All right. Uh, I, this was I enjoyed this it tremendously. Me this too. This is great. We can always talk about philosophy. Absolutely. Um, well, we'll get to again in the context of these actual stories. We sure I think will. That'll, that'll be fun because we'll have like concrete stuff to like talk about yeah. in the form of these I, stories. I, I think it'll be fun if anyone actually is listening to this, having not yet read <laughs> these stories. I think you will see if you read them. Right. This Some is interesting bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, it is also it's not bullshit. Only but, bullshit. <laughs> right. Not just is doing a lot of heavy lifting in that sentence. <laughs> cool. Well, I think with that, again, the book we're reading, um, Exhalation by Ted Chang, 
Also read stories of your life and others. I, I imagine we'll have a hard time not talking about some of those stories too. We'll do our best. I, d- I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll figure out a way to like be able to talk about like his short stories generally while also focusing on exhalation. Um, but it is, you know, it was just published earlier this month or I guess last month at the time the recording goes out. Uh, worth picking up. Really cool. Um, the short story exhalation is available online. So if you just want to like read that one, you can do that first and get a sense of what his short stories are like. Um, yeah. Thanks to WJ for the music you're hearing right now. Thanks to Noah Bradley for our artwork. I realize we forgot to thank them. Um, in some of the other episodes with the, with oh, man. just cause stuff. Thank got, you guys. Stuff got very, uh, heady <laughs> and punchy in those, uh, conversations. Um, so yeah, so thanks a lot to those folks who have, you know, like help support our podcast from the very beginning with their, with their work and labor and letting us use thank that. Thank you so um, much. It's very appreciated. And, yeah, we'll be back uh, when we're back to, to talk about Chang's stories. Looking forward. Good night, Matt. Farewell. <laughs>